Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give the voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Hello, welcome everybody to Socialist Alliance and Green Left's um, forum, Albanese's Labour Sacrificing Principles for Power. Before we begin, I'd like to start by recognising that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, um, that the land was taken by force and sovereignty has never been ceded, that colonisation is ongoing and that the fight continues. We have three speakers for the forum tonight. Sue Ball, who's a union activist and a member of Socialist Alliance from Geelong. Um, Zane Alcorn, a CFMMEU member, Earthworker Construction Co-op member, Socialist Alliance member, and People's Blockade organizer. Um, and we have Chloe Diaz, a refugee rights activist, 3CR presenter, Socialist Alliance member. Um, Going to go to the first speaker, Sue Ball. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'd just like to say that I'm actually a, still a, a member of the CFMU as well. I'm a retired member, though, but my whole history as a trade union activist has been with the CFMU and the Teachers Union, um, which is now the AU. Okay, well, I'll bet everyone in this room and online breathed a big sigh of relief on the evening of May 21, 2022. It wasn't that most of us had any illusions that the incoming ALP government was going to change the world. It's just that after 10 years of increasingly horrible right-wing coalition governments, nothing could be so bad. Remember how we all used to cringe and probably spew hatred every time Scott Morrison opened his ugly mouth and said something indecent about refugees, bushfire victims, women, First Nations activists, the unemployed, people with disabilities, the environment while holding a piece of coal, I could go on. But how good was it when he he and the rest of his right-wing cronies were so unceremoniously dumped from office? And remember how Albanese on the night of the election claimed victory with words like these. I put forward a positive, clear plan for a better future for our country. And I have shared the two principles that will be part of a government that I lead. No one left behind, because we should always look after the disadvantaged and the vulnerable, but also no one held back, because we should always support aspiration and opportunity. That is what my government will do. In other words, he claimed to be very principled. He was going to look after the working class and give opportunities to the ruling class. In fact, Later in the speech, he spelt out this. Together, we can work in common interests with business and unions to drive productivity, lift wages and profits. Once again, that idea that workers and capital have heaps in common if we all work together. Forget that workers at that time had barely had a pay rise for decades and the cost of living was already spiralling out of control while profits soared. Well, tonight we're going to examine Albanese's principles and see how the working class generally, unions, the environment, housing and refugees in particular, have actually fared under the Labor government. I'm also going to make comparisons with previous Labor governments, asking whether they have always been like this. Well, less than 12 months after it was elected, Labor brought down its first budget 
It was in the black, had cut $17.8 billion from government agencies and didn't budge on continuing with stage three tax cuts. Clearly a message to capital that they, the ALP, could be relied upon to protect the corporate sector in the event of another crash like the great financial crash of 2008 as there was plenty of money in the kitty for bailouts. Meanwhile, no significant pay rises for the unemployed and those on welfare. They were offered an increase lower than that allocated by Scott Morrison's government in 2021. There were a few minor social welfare sweeteners, but Labor was tinkering around the edges while window addressing big ticket items, such as the $11.3 billion for aged care workers' wages to try and sell the idea it was addressing working people's needs. There was almost nothing in the budget to transition away from fossil fuels and carbon emission reductions, and the $368 billion committed to AUKUS nuclear-powered submarines remained. So if we were going to do a tally of Albanese's principles, we'd have to say capital one, the working class zero, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And what did the unions have to say about all of this? Let's turn to the ALP National National Conference in August of this year, when we find Sally McManus, ACTU Secretary, worried about record profits during a cost of living crisis, as she should be, but praising Labor for not wasting any time in legislating to improve workers' rights. Indeed, the whole of that conference, where affiliated unions have delegates, was one of compromise. As the Guardian journalist Paul Cutt noticed on August 19 of this year, essentially it's a core Labor value to compromise to get things done. Party conference delegates got the memo and compromise they did. Carp noted that Albanese's whole address to the conference was essentially about making lasting change while retaining government for the next decade. Um, But one has to ask lasting change for whom? Every progressive demand that might help our class was pushed off into some deal for a review or for the Never Never Land. Just two examples from left unions. The CFMEU pushed for a super profits tax to pay for housing, but was forced to settle for a vague commitment to funding from a progressive and sustainable tax system, including corporate tax reform. That that was the solution. Nobody actually knows what it means. (laughs) While the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, got a promise of supposedly substantial public investment in renewable electricity and expanded state ownership, but this was clouded by the need for hundreds of billions of dollars worth of the implementation investment. So put off for the never-never. There were no policy changes in regards to AUKUS or foreign affairs. Indeed, while the left, which supposedly has the numbers but never unites enough to use them, got to interject during the AUKUS debate, delegates turned around and shouted, join the Greens. The Greens, as always, are the convenient ridicule enemy, and to be honest, we're in that category as well for all true believers. The CARP concluded Labor's history is one of compromise. Well, it's more than just compromise. Labor throughout its history has always been the other party of capital. 
As Sam Wainwright said in, in the Green Left of June 28 this year, since Labor was founded in 1901, it has always promoted a fantasy where workers and big business pull together and everyone gets a fair slice of the pie. <coughs> Labor governments owe their first loyalty, loyalty to capitalism, not to their own party or working people. Labor functions as the sugar coating on the poison pill of Australian capitalism. Well, even Lenin, observing from far off Russia in the days before social media, had no illusions in the nature of the Australian Labor Party. Here is a hilarious, often quoted passage from Lenin in 1913. <laughs> way, way back. This is what he said. The parliamentary elections took place in Australia recently. The Labor Party, which had the majority in the lower house, having 44 seats out of 75, suffered defeat. Now it only has 36 seats out of 75. The majority has passed to the Liberals. But this majority is very unstable because in the upper house, 30 of the 36 seats are occupied by Labor. What a peculiar capitalist country is this in which, <laughs> in which Labor predominates in the upper house and recently predominated in the lower house, and yet the capitalist system does not suffer any danger. <laughs> he goes on to say, the Australian Labor Party does not even claim to be a socialist party. As a matter of fact, it's a liberal bourgeois party, and the so-called liberals in Australia are really conservatives. But he also identified in that little, it's quite, it's quite a short article. If you look it up online, you'll, you'll really get a scream out of it because it's quite hilarious. But he also identifies the leaders of the Australian Labor Party are trade union officials, an element which everywhere represents a most moderate and capital-serving element. And in Australia, it is altogether peaceful and purely liberal. <laughs> Ouch. That was 110 years ago and what's actually changed. changed. <laughs> exactly. Now, that's not to say that all union leaders are actually servants of capital, but they are a bureaucratic layer that is privileged and prone to doing deals that serve the interests of capital more than their own workers. And, of course, I'm not saying everyone's like this, but there's a lot of them. Just look at the history of the Australian Workers' Union, of whom Bill Shorten, a former national secretary of that union, is such a shining example. <laughs> the AWU has always stood by the oil, gas and coal companies. Their support in Geelong, of course, I'm from Geelong, and I was involved in the Viva Energy campaign, and you, you don't need to know all the details, but they're trying to get a gas hub there, mm -hmm. and it's a seriously unsound and massively polluting gas hub, um, but they supported it because they've got a lot of jobs there. Um, indeed, they bullied Geelong Trades Hall into taking no position on the gas hub because they threatened to get all the blue collars to disaffiliate and trying to stop unions from mobilising to support environmental demands and portrayed greenies as the enemy of workers and the people. Of course, Shorten isn't the first ALP leader to sell out his working class roots. Billy Hughes, Australian Prime Minister during World War I, um, and we're talking 1916 in this particular case, and himself, a former AWU organiser, was only too happy to send more Australian workers to their doom 
and to actually split the Labor Party over conscription when there were no longer enough volunteers stepping forward for their World War I death sentence. Another significant point about this split is that there have been three splits in ALP history, all led by the pro-big business right-wing factions when they couldn't get their own way. The left in the Labor Party never split. It just compromises to avoid a split. Both Albanese and Gillard are examples of this and show why principles mean little. Remember that on the day of Gillard's most important important feminist speech against Abbott, it was the one that went, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. She also cut the single mother's pension. So much for sisterhood. There are two other historical examples of ALP history that I want to present which show clearly how Labor serves the interests of capital. Firstly, there is the 1949 coal miners' strike. It was the first time that soldiers were unions during peacetime to break a trade union strike. The strike by 23,000 coal miners lasted for seven weeks, but the chiefly Labor government broke it by sending the troops in and the workers were defeated as the soldiers scabbed on them. This was despite Chifley himself having a background as an organiser in a railway union that fought Billy Hughes's government during World War I. And indeed, that union was then deregistered by a state Labor government. But that was his background, but you know, 20 years later, all is forgotten. Sorry, 30 years later. The use of troops to break the 1949 coal miners' strike was used as a precedent by the Robert Menzies Conservative government to intervene on the waterfront at Bowen, Queensland in 1953 and in disputes in 1951, 52 and 54 against seamen and waterside workers. All of these unions were the most militant of their day. Many had leaderships who were members of the Communist Party of Australia and were reviled as enemies of the people. The ALP knew that they had to challenge the CPA because they might be seen as an alternative to themselves, similar to the vilification of the Greens today and and the whole left today. Overall, though, it was also a classic example of how Labor changes laws or sets precedents and softens working-class responses for much harsher anti-working-class attacks from Conservative coalition governments. My other example and my last example is what Bob Hawke, a former ACTU leader, was able to do as Labor Prime Minister by introducing the Prices and Incomes Accord in 1983. Now, there's a whole lot of people in this room who will remember this, (laughs) but there's a whole lot who probably don't know much about it. The, The Accord was an agreement between the ACTU and the Labor government. Employers were not party to it, but they gained from it. Under the Accord, Unions agreed to restrict wage demands while the government pledged to minimise inflation but increase spending on the social wage, uh, which was particularly education and welfare. This never happened and the accord became a very effective mechanism for undermining union solidarity and the militancy while also reducing union membership levels and the levels of experienced activists and so on and so forth. Many of the problems that unions face today have their roots in what happened under the Accord. Indeed, much of the anti-union legislation still in place now 
was initiated under the Hawke and Keating governments. The Howard government was then able to bring in brutal attacks only halted in 2007 when the left-wing unions, which included ourselves at that time, fought back and led the ousting of the government through the Your Rights at Work campaign. Sam Wainwright, uh, in the same article that I quoted before, explains it this way. In times of crisis, such as war and depression, Labor has been the more reliable manager because it can better restrain the union and the social movements in the name of the national interests. Sam shows that while the Reagan and Thatcher governments in the US and Britain during the 1980s were able to introduce the anti-working class policies of neoliberalism, in Australia, the unions were too strong and a frontal assault risked a backlash. Instead, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating went to work using the infamous Prices and Incomes Accord, which whittled away wages, rights and the welfare system. More recent Labor leaders like Rudd, Gillard, Albanese and most of the state Labor premiers, even the one who retired today, <laughs> were trained during the period of the Accord and that's why they are so skilled in making it look like they are acquiescing to union and working class demands while doing the opposite. This also partially explains why working class people have illusions in Labor. We're told it's the party of the working class and that many leaders have worked for unions so they must have our interests at heart. <laughs> also, we see how the Liberals are clearly pro-ruling class, while the Greens are portrayed as middle-class hypocrites whose policies are anti-worker. So in answer to one of the questions for tonight, have ALP governments always been like this? My answer is yes, they have. The only principle that Labor has ever abided by is that they must win and maintain power at all costs. For the individuals, they see that winning union positions where they maintain class peace is a career path to becoming an MP. So herein lies the challenge for us. We have to expose the ALP to workers and the sham that their bourgeois governments represent. The honeymoon period is nearly over. Albanese's popula popularity is falling. Two-thirds think he's not doing enough to ensure affordable and secure rentals, while three-quarters think that the same about the cost of living. <clears throat> the problem is that eventually workers swing back to the Liberals mm. as the only alternative. Mm. So we need to be part of helping to build mass alternatives to the left of Labor, posing questions about the nature of capitalist societies and providing real solutions not based on the anarchy of the profit motive. We need to show that capitalism and their left tenants, like the ALP, cannot solve the very serious ecological problems and injustices experienced by billions of people on this planet at the moment. Indeed, they've never been able to provide the necessary solutions. So thank you. Thanks very much, Sue. Next, we have Zane. Evening, comrades, and uh, evening, comrades, on the Zoomies. Um, so, uh, for my talk this evening, I'm just going to focus really on um, climate and energy policy under Labor governments, because we're in a, cl a climate crisis, and I think that's a pretty relevant uh, facet of, of this discussion. Uh, so I'm going to look a bit at the record of uh, the, the shift towards renew renew renewables, Um <laughs> Uh, fossil fuel exports under Labor governments, state and federal, 
Um, and then look a little bit at the the nature of how the Labor Party wields or does not wield its its power, um, both when it's in government and also how it uh, uses its party resources. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'll finish by saying this is why we need forces to the left of the ALP. So, um, fossil fuel exports. Uh, for those who don't know, I am uh, I grew up in Newcastle, Mullabimba, and that is the world's uh, largest coal port there. And Australia is one of the um, world's largest exporters of, of coal, um, particularly on, on boats. Russia exports a lot of coal and trains. Uh, but yeah, Australia is um, one of the largest uh, coal exporters in the world. And we are in the middle of a um, climate crisis. So we've known about climate change for many, many decades, right? It's not something that's new. Um, so if the Labor Party really wanted to implement some kind of gradual piecemeal thing to um, move us away from exporting uh, fossil fuels, they could have done that. Instead, what we've seen consistently when um, Labor is in government, both at a um, federal level and at a state level, is they just continue approving open slather, more oil, um, offshore oil fields over, particularly in WA, um, uh, more, more gas fields, more um, fracking. There has been some um, limitations on fracking here in Victoria under the Andrews government, but in general, no real substantial shift away from Australia being uh, also one of the world's largest gas exporters. Um, and I guess there's also a refusal to look at what a what a transition away from fossil fuel exports would look like insofar as if we were going to do that and do it in a way that doesn't leave large numbers of workers uh, unemployed, that would probably require bringing the industry under public control and pumping tens uh, of billions, if not $100 billion, into a transition um, plan which provides alternative jobs and builds up alternative exports. There's no willingness to discuss to the, even that idea of talking about that is very off limits for uh, Labor governments, state and federal. Um, yeah, so that's that's the stuff that Australia exports to the world. Here in Australia, domestically, we have been moving at a, quite a gradual place, pace, but we have been gradually moving from uh, getting our electricity from burning coal towards more renewables. However, um, the Labor Party, much more than the Liberal Party, have sort of been leaning a bit into that direction. However, they push this in a very neoliberal, privatised market framework. And, and it's uh, in, in New South Wales, it was the Labor government there that kicked off the process of privatising the um, power stations up there. Now, the, the problem here is... The, the nature of how renewable energy puts electricity into the grid and how coal-fired power stations put energy into the grid is quite different. It, and particularly with solar power, in the middle of the day, there's a heap of solar power going into the grid. Um, under the market pricing system, this brings the price down. So the privatised coal-fired power stations are not making profits during the day. And then at night, if it's windy, 
they might not make much profit then either. As time goes on, and as we have this market privatized transition towards renewables, we're going to reach a point where the privatized owners of the coal-fired power stations are making so little profit that they can't justify continuing to um, operate those coal-fired power stations. And when that happens, they will just get up and leave. And then it's possible that there will be blackouts. And then it's possible that the Murdoch media and the Liberals and all the right-wing forces will say, see, this is the crazy Labour government, greeny, crazy renewable stuff, and now we've got blackouts. No, no, it's not renewables that is doing that. It's the private owners of coal-fired power stations leaving and creating chaos. So, again, whilst we are moving towards renewables, and that's a positive thing, because it's happening in an entirely privatised manner, it's creating very serious uh, political risks to that transition process. And if we had retained public ownership of the entire energy system, and if we had public ownership of the renewables, we could have a smooth and orderly transition and not risk uh, this chaos. So, um, yeah, I guess by by the Labor Party going down the path of uh, neoliberal economics, they've um, they've put us on a collision course with with uh, some serious problems. Uh, another thing that we see under um, Labor governments is the co-option and demobilisation of social movements. Um, there was quite a powerful climate movement during the sort of mid-2000s, uh, during the time of the Howard government. Uh, the Liberal government under Howard were very blatantly not interested in climate action. People didn't like that. They took to the streets. Uh, once the Rudd-Gillard government was elected, they sort of said, oh, we're going to have this carbon pollution reduction scheme, and then they couldn't get that through because uh, it was crap and, and the Greens helped to block it, which was supported by the movement. And then later the Gillard government implemented the, the carbon tax and there was this big campaign to say yes to the carbon tax. Um, echoes of, of what's happening at the moment in some ways. Um, and a lot of those activists who had been very involved in the climate movement in the mid-2000s found themselves campaigning for this very weak climate policy that was not going to deliver radical cuts to emissions the ending of, of Australian fossil fuel exports that we really need if Australia is going to play its part in stopping the climate crisis. Um, so that's a pretty clear example of how Labor governments can co-opt and, and demobilise social movements. Um, so in terms of, of sacrificing principles, I think, well, one principle that, that probably the people in this room would agree with is that people and planet should come before profits. Um, Labor governments view it in reverse. They they are ultimately part of this committee for the common affairs of the, of the bourgeoisie. They're there to kind of manage the capitalist system. They're not there to discipline and uh, completely reshape and indeed pull apart the capitalist system if that's what's needed to protect people and the environment. So uh, we see Labor governments just are not willing to wield the state. So, for example, they're not willing to nationalise or renationalise the energy sector. They're not willing to nationalise 
the fossil fuel sector as part of a plan to phase it out. It's just not uh, on the menu. Whereas a, um, a party that does put people and profits before corporations, then that is a tool that is in the toolkit. We are the government. We are going to take over this whole sector of the economy and phase it out. And we're going to do it in a way that uh, minimizes the harms to workers and, and, in fact, ideally does not cause any harm to workers that are currently in those uh, industries. That's just not on the menu for the Labor Party. Um, there's also a refusal to use party resources to build a counterpower to corporations and to the Murdoch media. So uh, back when the uh, Whitlam government was in power, they, they implemented all these progressive reforms, and then ultimately there was a, a, a British and US-backed coup against Whitlam. Um, now, instead of um, drawing uh, the moral from that story that, oh, gee, we're going to have to get a bit more organised if we are to resist coup attempts, the, the lesson learned from the Labor Party was, oh, okay, uh, that was a bit naughty, and uh, to avoid that situation happening again, we need to stick within the confines of what the ruling class tells us is acceptable. And we can maybe push it a little bit, but, but we're not we're not going to go too far or too radical. Um, that's a fundamentally wrong approach, I believe. The the Labor Party has far more resources and, and far more members at its disposal. It's got its networks into the trade union movement. If the political will was there, the Labor Party could mobilise all of those resources to build a counter power and to build a counter narrative against corporate domination of the economy and society. But they, they don't do that. So I guess... Um, in, in summary, the, the Labor Party, and, and Sue did mention this before, um, during periods of crisis or recession or, or depression, Labor governments tend to handle it better. And this is because the Labor Party could be viewed as almost like the capitalist duopoly shock absorber. The, the Liberal Party tries to see how much they can get away with making capitalism even more intense and exploitative and harsh and barbaric. And then if the workers push back, the Labor Party's job is to absorb that. Um, the, the interesting but, but kind of also scary dynamic at the moment is that runaway climate change is very shocking. And I don't think that the Labor Party can just absorb temporary shocks in the way that it traditionally would with social movements. We're, we've got the housing crisis, we've got the climate crisis, the cost of living crisis, we've got weak unions. All of these things are piling up. And I think there's a lot of people are realising that the two-party system is garbage and are looking elsewhere for answers. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, and I, I think powerful uh, social movements and also parties to the left of Labor getting seats in Parliament, and that might be the Greens or Socialists starting to get numbers in Parliament uh, at a state, federal and local level, that those those are, can be mutually reinforcing and start to build a, a counter power that starts to um, create space outside of the ALP so that they're not so uh, able to... Uh, absorb the shock. So, um, yeah, so I think the 
future is bright and there is potential for rebellion. Um, and I'll finish by encouraging people to come to the People's Blockade of the World's Largest Coal Port happening up in Mullabinburg, Newcastle in late November. Uh, we are in a period of wall-to-wall Labor governments. Uh, generally, at times like this, people can be like, oh, well, we want to let the Labor Party do their thing and see if they fix things. Um, Rising Tide, who are organising this, are very clear-eyed that the Labor Party are trash, that they will continue approving new coal mines when they are in government, and that the only way that we're going to do anything about that is to build a very powerful uh, mass movement, and that's what they're doing their very best to try and uh, cohere, and they've been they've done an East Coast tour to try and build this. So, yeah, don't be co-opted and demobilised. Come and rebel at the People's Blockade of the world's biggest coal port. Thank you very much, Zane. Um, and next is going to be Chloe. And and hello to everyone here and those online. Um, just before I start, I would like to acknowledge that I'm speaking on the land of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the rightful sovereign owners of the land um, on which we live and work. And this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So I'm going to be going into a bit more detail about how the ALP has consistently let down some of the most vulnerable people in society. And I'll focus on refugees and welfare recipients and um, and also public housing residents. And I'll also talk a bit about this to begin with. But firstly, um, you know, as you have heard from Sue Bulls and, and um, Zane's talks, the Albanese ALP government is the most conservative Labour government than previous Labour governments. Uh, they've changed very little um, and they are not willing to get rid of all of the terrible things caused by the Morrison gov government. And we are happy to kick out, we were happy to kick out those misogynistic um, climate denying idiots <laughs> from the LNP, but Labour and Liberal have very few differences. And we can see this um, in Albanese's government's commitment to AUKUS. Um, Labour has a similar outlook to the Liberal Party and are in favour of the war drive um, that the Liberals were pushing. And Albanese has wasted no time after being elected, pledged his support to the anti-China grouping of the US, Japan, India and Australia. And remember, this was one of the first actions of the Albanese government, and that really symbolises Australia's loyalty to the United States and the quadrilateral security dialogue, the, the Quad, uh, and that, you know, the Quad is designed to foster war and a more antagonistic imperialist stance on the world stage. And we know mil militarism and war hurts ordinary people. People aren't voting to go to war. There was no referendum on spending billions of dollars on those nuclear submarines or joining AUKUS. So over the next three decades, Labor and Coalition have committed to buying, building, operating, maintaining a fleet of more than eight nuclear-powered submarines. And this amounts to the biggest single um, the single biggest investment in Australia's defence capacity since colonisation. And the whole program is costing more than $368 billion. And we should all see this for what it is. It's an extraordinary waste of public money and an assault on working people who are expected to pay for it. 
nuclear submarines, um, nuclear powered submarines are a big risk to people and the environment um, in ports. Several thousand people marched down Port Kembla's main street against Labor's proposal that the port become a possible base for its AUKUS nuclear submarines, but the ALP government uh, is not listening to them. The storage of nuclear waste is a major environmental problem, especially for First Nations people whose land and country nuclear waste will be stored. And the $400 billion cost of AUKUS and the nuclear subs is taking place at a time of rising cost of living, inflation, unaffordable housing, skyrocketing rents, and 20 to 25% increase in, in prices of power. It is also at a time when public health and education critic is critically un underfunded and under-resourced. Aged care is in crisis, as is the NDIS or the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the climate crisis. The ALP has continued the propaganda and the fear of China to try and convince us to accept that the huge military spend on AUKUS is necessary for our security and prosperity. And we know that that's totally bullshit. Um, China is not coming to get us, but it is not our safety, livelihoods, or the environment the ALP cares about. It's it's all about ensuring multinational corporations can continue to make their profits and protect the US global economic and political rules-based order. And war creates refugees. So the politics in Australia has shifted to the right because Labor abandoned opposition to anti-refugee policies that the Liberals introduced. But both the Labor government and the LNP have a horrific track record of cruelty to refugees. The ALP were the party that introduced mandatory detention and the PNG solution. And like the Liberal Party, the Labor Party is also committing to never resettling anyone who came to Australia by boat after July 19, 2013. And this includes all the Medivac refugees who were locked up in detention for over nine years most were released before the federal election. But there are thousands who are still stuck on bridging visas um, and have been for over 10 years. They're waiting to be trafficked to other countries. There are thousands of refugees still stranded in Indonesia, and most of them are Hazara refugees from Afghanistan. There are still people who remain stuck in detention centres indefinitely under the Harsh Migration Act under Section 501. The government said at the ALP conference in, in, in August, was it, it was August, right, that they will lift the humanitarian refugee intake to 20,000 people, uh, but the actual policy going into the election was 27,000. And just before Christmas, they announced that 19,000 refugees living in Limbo on temporary visas would be able to apply for permanency from early this year, but no time frame was outlined. And this is welcome news. Um, we can't, we're not going to credit the Labour government for this this victory because it is the victory of the people's movement and the refugees themselves who protested against their treatment on these T TPVs and from inside detention and inspired marches in the streets. And 10,000 refugees on these bridging visas, many of whom were subjected to Scott Morrison's fast track process, will not be eligible to apply for permanent residency here. And these people have been waiting in limbo for what, 10, 11 years, and they've suffered more than a decade of discrimination. Uh, one one of them might be on the call tonight. She said she was coming. She's an Iranian woman who's been organising day-long protest sit-ins outside of the Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill's office. 
And many people on bridging visas don't have access to basic civil rights, the right to study or work, or the right to reunite with their families. And some of these people were medevaced after getting sick from the conditions of prison islands that they were forced into. The government has basically adopted the coalition policy of abandoning them, saying you will never be resettled in Australia. And they were people who came here by boat. So the racist attack on people who arrived here by boat is still being carried out. One of the first shameful acts and uh, shameful and sadistic acts of the Albanese government was to turn back boats on the high seas as part of Operation Border um, Operation Sovereign Borders. This is a brutal racist strategy uh, from both major part that both major parties are committed to. The Albanese government also voted against the Migration uh, Amendment Evacuation to Safety Bill um, to bring the remaining refugees to Australia after suffering years and years of psychological and physical harm in detention camps the Australian government put them in. On Albanese's election night, he promised that no one would be left behind by Labor. And Labor... Labor has been rightly accused of making decisions um, Scott Morrison would have loved, but it it ruled out any substantial rise to unemployment benefits. So I want to talk a little bit about um, you know, the fact that more than 3 million people are currently living below the poverty line, and it's mainly women and children that are disproportionately impacted by poverty and homelessness. More than 2 million households in Australia have run out of food in the last year due to limited finances. People are skipping meals, food insecurity is getting worse. Um, and uh, it's particularly in rural and remote areas where prices can be up to three times more than in cities. At the same time, the rate of job seeker and other welfare payments has fallen less than half, um, fallen to less than half the poverty line, even with Labor's measly $56 a fortnight rise. We saw from the robo-debt scheme under the coalition how scapegoating uh, welfare recipients is a feature of the capitalist system. So punishing people on welfare is deliberate and is a way to divide and rule. And there is this expectation that people who have a job will regard people who don't have a job as lazy and who don't want to work. And the capitalist class deliberately keeps a significant proportion of workers unemployed. So um, yeah, Marx called this the, the reserve army of labor to keep pressure on workers um, to compete for jobs and keep wages down. The ALP chose to ignore their welfare advisory committee who called for an increase to the seriously inadequate unemployment support. And this shows us that they failed to listen to the advice of their own committees. And this is why they're currently trying to push for the voice to parliament, which would involve a First Nations advisory committee set up. Indigenous debts in custody are at their highest in the 15 years that record, records have been kept, but the Labor government have only implemented one of the recommendations of the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which is one more than the coalition. They agreed to count body bags that come out of prisons. So that that's the... Um, that's the recommendation that they implemented. This is not going to stop debts in custody and the ongoing genocide of First Nations people. Lastly, on housing, the Labor government has shown that they're not serious about solving the housing crisis. Uh, they've had a pathetic response with their housing bill and they continue to attack public housing residents across the country. 
And in a rich country like Australia, we have a homelessness crisis. And even when the ALP, when, even when they try to implement some improvements, they do it in a way that doesn't upset the status quo, like with the Housing Future Fund. So instead of directly investing public, in, directly investing into um, or directly funding public and affordable housing, they want to gamble $10 billion worth of public money on the stock market. And last year, that future fund actually lost money 1.2%. So they refused to directly spend um, spend on housing, but will make private investments, hand out big plots of land to developers while rents are skyrocketing and people can't keep up with their mortgage payments. And this is a there's a serious rental crisis happening right now. Rents have gone up much faster than incomes over the last year and fastest they're fastest for low income households in in regional areas where rents rose by 12.1%. There's a whole green left article you can read about renters left shivering in the cold it, it, shivering in the cold um in their houses through winter because of inadequate red, rental properties or simply because they can't afford heating bills. Labor is refusing to budge on rent caps or a freeze on rent, and they seem to be plowing ahead to dismantle the whole public housing infrastructure and privatize public land. Public housing wait lists are growing, and is and as is homelessness, and the emergence of tent cities and people are sleeping in their cars. And the ALP is meanwhile bulldozing public housing. There was this inspirational campaign around the Brock Beacon public housing estate, which is it, which was in Port Melbourne. But in the end, 89 households were evicted from their homes before they were demolished, causing many residents lots of grief um, after their homes and community were torn apart. And many are still experiencing mental health problems and trauma after being moved on. So we need more public housing, and it is a joint responsibility between federal government and and the and the state governments and the Dan Andrews Labor government. I mean, well, Dan Andrews has just resigned, so this is part of his legacy. Now that they recently announced plans to knock down forty four public housing towers here and forcibly relocate ten thousand residents and rebuild the sites with a mix of private and social housing, and they like to throw around nice terms like social housing and community housing to try to trick people. Mm. But this propaganda by Albanese, where he keeps talking about 1.2 million homes that he's promising to build, not one of them is going to be public housing. So, you know, this is the only way that people on low incomes can afford to live in a house. Working class communities have fought for the right to live in dignity, to live in a decent home where they felt where they feel safe and warm. And this neoliberal agenda over the past 30 years has eroded public housing and has reduced it from 20% of all housing to just 2% today. During the 80s and 90s, we saw Hawke keep the Hawke Keating government bring in a whole platform of neoliberalism that they introduced liberalism into Australia. And pretty much every Labour government since then has tread the same neoliberal path, looking after big business interests at the expense of ordinary people. And after 12 years of that liberal national government, the ALP is not doing anything different. So just, just want to end on, you know, just like reiterate that Labor is just continuing their decades long tradition of trying to be more liberal than the liberals and turning their back on some of the most vulnerable people in society. And they've been pretty successful at 
dampening, you know, at you know, bringing down our expectations so much that we will think that we can't really do anything um, more than the basic incremental change. So the challenge is for all of us to join the fight to build alliances that break down the illusion that the Labour Party is a party for the working class. Um, it has never served the interests of ordinary people, let alone taking care of the most oppressed people in society. And it is hard to convince people of this after 10 years of a disgusting liberal government where many people see Labour as, you know, as a, like some kind of saviour. But we voted for change and we haven't seen much of it. And that's why we are out there campaigning in various movements. It's um, it's when you become active in campaigning for your rights and the rights of others that, you know, you begin to see um, that the LP is not there to look after us or represent our interests. Um, they want to manage capitalism in the interests of big business. And, you know, they may bring some reforms, but their loyalty is to is to big business. It's clear that this is their priority. Um, that's the leadership of, of the Labour Party, that it's been this way for over 100 years, um, as Sue was talking about. And the fact that there's so much opposition to AUKUS, I guess, um, means that there is opportunity to build a stronger anti-war movement and a campaign that we can, you know, we can possibly win. But we need to build a political force to the left of Labour if we're going to win all of, you know, if we're going to win on all of the um, the main issues and actually see progressive or lasting change. I think I'll, I'll end there. Thanks. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.